0: Welcome back to Out the Gate, the podcast about sailing and adventure on and around San Francisco Bay. Today, I am not in San Francisco. I'm in beautiful Pasadena, California. Well, a little less beautiful because of all the smoke today. Uh, The Bobcat Fire, which unfortunately last night grew, is just over the ridge here. So the air is a bit hazy. I drove down here today with my brother because he is looking to buy a car here. So hopefully he will be done with that deal soon and we'll be driving back up to San Francisco in a new car. But today on the podcast, we're going somewhere you can't drive, Fiji, to catch up with Ronnie Simpson, a sailor and sailing journalist who's sailed many miles. You may have read about Ronnie in Outside Magazine, Cruising World, Sail, or Latitude 38. And you might have read articles by Ronnie in many of those same publications because he covers, as a journalist, the international racing circuit. But before all that, while on duty in Iraq, Ronnie was hit and injured by an RPG, rocket-propelled grenade, leaving him with serious injuries. He picked up sailing after coming home from Iraq as a new way to explore the world. He's competed in multiple races, including some single-handed, and he's set up sailing and surfing clinics for wounded veterans. Most recently, after cruising the South Pacific, Ronnie landed in Fiji, where he set up a surfing, stand-up paddleboard, and sailing company called Mamanuka Board Traders. We'll talk about all of this and more So let's jump right in. Let's start by you telling listeners where you are.
1: I am in beautiful western Fiji, where COVID is pretty well contained. And uh, that's where I'm calling
0: home these days. I wish we could say the same here in San Francisco. Um, (laughs) So your road to Fiji... Has been long and winding, and much of it over the water. But I think we should start. I think we should start before you got into sailing. You were you were in Iraq and got blown up by. uh,
1: I got hit by a rocket-propelled grenade. Sort of looks like a football, and it comes out of a tube. You always see them in movies when the when the when the bad guys are trying to take out a helicopter or a vehicle or something. Um, so I got hit by one of those shoulder fired rocket propelled grenades oh, and uh, I mean obviously it wasn't a, it wasn't a direct hit on me otherwise I wouldn't be here but it was a big enough hit to really just rock my body and and do a lot of damage all over and uh, internally and externally and, and and one of the biggest disadvantages I still live with to this day is that my vision was very very greatly impacted and reduced. Um, you know, I was 19 years old and, and I could no longer even get a driver's license. So that's actually the real reason I didn't have a license for, for so long in in my twenties and everything. I haven't had a license in like 12 years. Wow. So that was actually kind of one reason I like turning to sailing. You know, you didn't even need a license. You could just go do it. I got really seriously wounded when I was 19 and, and then my, my father died shortly after that also when I was 19 and I think those two, two incidents, uh, or two events, that close to one another greatly altered the the course um, and the trajectory of my life. And then, so it has been a bit of a unique journey that I certainly uh, probably wouldn't have been on had I had a more, you know, kind of normal 19th year on Earth.
0: Yeah. I mean, there's no way that those experiences in themselves wouldn't alter your life, but together it's, it's, a, it's a lot of trauma to take on. When and how, you weren't a sailor, before you, you went off to Iraq, when and how did sailing come into your life?
1: I was not a sailor. I grew up on uh, mostly bicycles, dirt bikes, and race cars and really fast go karts. So I grew up uh, on, on wheels my whole life in the South. Um, and when I was like 14, 15, you know, I, I wanted to be an car driver, and that was a attainable goal because I was kind of uh, I was racing the right kind of carts.
0: And that's what you got back into after you. Uh, how long was your recovery? I guess we should start there. Like, what what was the road to recovery um, for you like?
1: Well, I mean, recovery was of course it's ongoing, but but really it yeah. was like uh, it was like one year that I was pretty much out of commission. But within a year later, right around the time I was twenty, almost twenty one, I was I was riding sport bikes and getting back into motocross, and and uh, I was really involved in motorcycles, like as as much as I'm into sailing, I used to be that much into motorcycles, you know? And then, um, really long story short, I uh, I had one singular event, like a lot of people, I had one singular event that changed the course of everything. And, and that was that, um, you know, I used to ride my sport bike really, really recklessly in, um, in Texas. And so, I would get chased by the cops fairly frequently, uh, but there was like a no pursuit policy by the sheriff's department so whenever a cop would light you up if you made it really really obvious that you were going to run they would just turn their lights off and they would they would park again and so i was running from the cops one time and they really pursued me with all the resources the sheriff's department had and uh it was like the gnarliest experience of my entire life and i managed to get away unscathed but it was this one incident where I realized that I was willing to die really for nothing. And that was a shame, but it it, it made me realize that I was not happy in my life in Texas. Mm. And then I made a pretty radical decision. Once I realized I was not happy, that was the catalyst was that event. I realized I was just way too reckless because I wasn't fulfilled in life. And then I decided that I really wanted to get into sailing. I was at a time in my life when I was looking for a change.
0: But and how and then my, did you even get, idea
1: popped into my head
0: yeah how did that idea pop into your head how did you get introduced to it because it's from racing motorbikes it's not the natural progression
1: I just kind of wanted to get off the grid and I wanted to be able to travel and, and pursue my own uh, interests and really it was my brother that introduced me he um, he just said hey look at this adventure these guys that sailed around the world so I kind of read through their blog and they were I don't know four American guys they were 40 years old or something and they got a 45-foot boat, and they went around the world, and, uh, and I ended up reading, reading that blog, and I said, wow, this is, this is like a really cool idea that I had never even thought of. And then I started really looking at sailing, and uh, the more I looked at it, the more it made a lot of sense, you know, get an old boat and go on a big adventure.
0: <laughs> where were you in your life when you thought, oh, I want to leave everything on land behind and go get a boat?
1: Well, like I said, I was in Texas, which is where I had ended up after my recovery. And I was I was working full time selling motorcycles and, and doing very well at it. But I was working full time. I was going to a full time course load at university, and I was not doing well in my studies. So I was doing well at work, but not at school. And then I was racing motocross a lot and uh, and sport bikes. And then, you know, I, I bought a house and I was pseudo engaged, like not really engaged, but kind of. That was the plan. And um, I just took on life, I think, way too fast. And then I had that one incident that was really the catalyst for me to step back and evaluate and realize that I was just super not happy in life. And the course I was on just wasn't the course that I wanted to be on. And so, yeah, like I said, then I, then I changed it up, you know.
0: What was the next thing? How did you go about getting a boat? Because uh, there's, there's a steep learning curve there.
1: I went to San Diego and I bought this like old school 41 footer Palmer Johnson bounty two. And, uh, that thing was rad. I bought that thing. I, I flew out there and did a sea trial and I put down a small deposit as my house was under contracts so that once my house actually sold, I could just drive out to uh, San Diego and then pay off the boat. And then I would be home on the boat. So I just like consolidated my life down to a, a pickup truck basically and I was like, the, I mean, there was, there was shit hanging off that truck, like kayaks and bicycles and all kinds of stuff. Uh, I looked at like the Beverly Hillbillies going west, but uh, I, 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 I was still driving then. I drove out to, to California, like I said, got the boat, started there, and I lived there for about seven seven months. And then I took off on my first journey, which was, which was the one big failed journey that I've had. And so that was a, a learning experience, that set up several other experiences, you know?
0: Tell us about that, what you call a failure. But uh, I, I've read about it, and it sounds like you learned a lot from that from that journey. W- what happened?
1: I might be off on the dates, but I think it was October 8th or 9th, and the year was 2008. I was 23. I'd been sailing for basically six months, and I took off solo for Hawaii, and I was just going to start sailing around the world. I had kind of been dating this chick, and ended up going solo and then eight or nine days into the trip, I ended up getting rescued by a nine hundred foot cargo vessel, like a big steel freight ship. Twelve days later I ended up in China.
0: So why were um, you rescued? What what was the what was the reason for the rescue?
1: My wind vane was broken in half. It was an Aries wind vane mm. and also the rudder was removed from the boat. Ooh. And people always say that a full keel boat with like a, you know, keel hung rudder can't break
0: off. But I mean, it did. Like you could fully see over the side of the boat and the rudder was gone because
1: wow. I was fully aware of what it looked like and it was there. I'm really not sure what the, uh, what the issue was. Like there's speculation that I could have hit a whale or something in the water there's speculation that, like, you go down a wave the wrong way or something backwards on a full-keel boat, you could break a rudder that way. But long story short, I had lost, like, all steering on the boat, and it was a Palmer Johnson bounty, too. So if you look at the shape of it, it had big overhangs. So it was one of those old-school, almost Sparkman Stevens-looking designs. It was a Phil Roach design. But, mm-hmm. like, the transom was absolutely tiny, so it was a crazy bracket off the back to even bolt a wind vane. And that thing was, like... Like I said, an Aries wind vane is super heavy duty, and it was it was broken in half. So I'm not quite sure what happened, but I was on the outskirts of a uh, Category Four hurricane called Hurricane Norbert. I mean, I didn't see that much breeze; probably only probably 40, 45 max. But the seas were the seas were really bad. And now I think no doubt I would get through that situation. But back then, um, maybe I didn't handle the boat the best way possible, and also the boat. Was admittedly old and had been pretty well used, but I thought she was pretty strong. But at any rate, you know, I lost my rudder and my wind vane, and then, and then I was getting, I got knocked down twice, mm. and the boat popped right back up because it had a full keel. But when I got knocked down, um, on the second one, I kind of flew across the cabin and got a little, a little bit injured. And that's when I just assessed the situation, and I was really ready to get off the boat, and I was, I was scared.
0: Yeah.
1: And, uh, I was, I was scared, you know, and I don't get scared by like that many things, like really scared, but I was scared. I never thought death was imminent, but I was like, you know, if you can get out of this situation, you should really pull that card and you should, you should live to fight another day and you can always get another boat. And and then I, uh, I opted to, to use the epurb and, and organize the rescue.
0: Having never been in combat or really anything close to it, there's no way that I would compare sailing and combat, but are there any similarities that you see or lessons that you learned in one that you used in the other?
1: Oh, absolutely. I think there's a ton of similarities. I mean, and I think that's that's one of the reasons I like sailing so much, but also it's, it's one of the reasons that uh, I think sailing and especially crude fully crewed sailing is and racing is so good for combat wounded vets and that's why we had done the nonprofit stuff in san francisco which i'm sure we'll touch on yeah we'll get to um that. sailing and combat are are both similar in so many ways you know you can be at sea for easily 23 days or a month or something like that and it feels like the length of a of a deployment almost you know and it's like you're deployed to the ocean and so it feels like you're away from home and and you're out there whether it's by yourself or with a few other people and it's it's nice and calm and mellow the whole time but you have a few little incidents that really really require you to be on your a-game and i think it's sort of like they say like uh mass boredom you know accentuated by short moments of terror or something like that mm-hmm. and that's how combat and and sailing are are similar and, and also when you're fully crewed sailing too you know, there's, there's a hierarchy. There's someone in command and there's a team working together. People have specific orders. And just the way that a racing boat operates is a lot like a platoon or something in Iraq. And you're on your own little adventure, but you're all working together to achieve the common good and, and get that good result. And so there are – and also it's it's a massive adrenaline rush, you know. The, the feeling of getting shot at is it's that same rush that you get when it's, like, super, super windy, but you're still sending it hard with the kite up. And then as the wind backs off a bit and you realize that, you know, you, like, you got away with it, you know what I mean? (laughs) And it's like you pushed the boundary, but you got away with it. Yeah. And it's that little feeling of relief is the same little feeling when you get shot at and you're like, well, they fucking missed me. Like, I'm still here, but, like, it's that same kind of rush, but it's more sustainable and it's safer.
0: Yeah. Huh. So after your rescue you found yourself aboard a ship and where were you bound for?
1: That ship was bound for Shanghai, China. And I was on that ship for I'm pretty sure it was twelve days. You
0: got Shanghai. <laughs>
1: yeah, that's what we would always say, I got Shanghai for sure.
0: But your circumnavigation didn't end. You 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 picked up the pieces and kept going just by a different mode of transportation.
1: It was kind of funny, you know, the State Department, the U.S. State Department, they had to get involved, and, you know, I was getting off the container ship, and they had, like, you know, a CNN camera there, and there was probably a headline that says, like, dumbass 23-year-old sailor gets rescued by a cargo ship or something, and so I'm, like, stepping off the ship as, like, an international just, like, kind of fuck up, to be honest, and I go to the State Department, and he's like, hey, uh, we already arranged a flight for you to get home, et cetera. And I was like, nah, dude, I, I, I just left like three weeks ago. I, I can't go home yet. And so, unfortunately, uh, I didn't really have any money, but I still had a little bit of money. And um, I went to Hong Kong, and I bought a bicycle, and I bought all the gear and everything. And then I had my monthly, uh, my monthly little government pension for getting shot up. So I got, you know, wasn't enough, but I got, I got money from that. And then I just took off on a basically round the world bicycle trip. I started in China, I went through Southeast Asia, went across India, went across a lot of Europe and did uh 9,000 miles through like 21 countries over the course of January to July, 2009. Wow. That was, I think the real turning point in my life was, was that trip. I think that trip is when I became just the person that I am, that I am now. You know, having seen a little bit of the world through the eyes of an American combat Marine in a war zone, and then seeing a lot more of the world through the eyes of just a dude riding a bike through, it gave me a much better perspective on how the world really is. And uh, it was, for me, it was so inspiring. I realized that, that people are good. And, and that the world is a beautiful place. It's not a terrible place, you know? And it's like you go to a war zone and, and you're always surrounded by death and destruction and politics and this guy's a terrorist and that guy blew up a car bomb and, and you start to get this perception that the world is such a negative place. And uh, and then traveling by the bicycle, I realized that it was just it was a beautiful place. And uh, that was just the coolest trip of my life, really.
0: And so that trip took you... Where else did you go, and where was the destination?
1: Well, I started on uh, New Year's Day 2009 in Hong Kong. I had to take a ferry to get off Hong Kong. I went to the city right across the border from Hong Kong, mm-hmm. and then I, I started down this basically this coastal road called the G325. You can look at it on Google Maps. I went down the G325, which is a Guangdong province highway, and it's pretty much along the coast. So, I stayed a pretty flat route, pretty close to the coast, and I just kept on going towards Vietnam. And then I got into Vietnam and I rode down the whole route of the whole length of Vietnam, excuse me, and then across Cambodia into Bangkok, Thailand. And then I couldn't get a visa for Burma, and I had tried multiple times, so I got a visa for India. So, I flew to Calcutta, and India was just a complete trip incredible interesting place
0: Mm.
1: spent a month in India going across India and then I flew out to Turkey because I could not get a visa for Pakistan or Iran and there was a lot of instability in at that particular time that was the election of 2009 in Iran and it was also like a rise of uh, a lot of terrorist activity in Pakistan then so there's no way I could get a visa for Pakistan or Iran so then I flew to Turkey and rode from Istanbul just clear across Europe to the English Channel, and then got a ferry to England. And then as soon as I got to England, my bike got stolen. Oh. that was a bummer. And then I bought a like way cheaper English city commuter bike, and and rode it around England. And I and I, <laughs> I got on a what do they call it? Uh, like a cargo plane. Uh huh. And uh, because I was retired military and I had the military ID, I got onto a base in England, which was the plan. I got onto a base in England, and I and I hopped one of those uh, space available flights back to whatever that base is that's pretty close to San Francisco. That Air Force base that's like an hour or two outside of San Francisco.
0: Travis, is that it?
1: Travis, Travis. Yeah. yeah. And then I uh, I got back to San Francisco, and then I went down the coast to San Diego and that's where I had started on the boat. So I was kind of like done with the trip. You
0: that know? is awesome. That is fantastic. Um, and a lot of people who had set sail from San Diego and a couple weeks later lost their rudder and their boat would say, okay, that was a fun experiment. I'm done. But you said, no, I'm, I'm going back for more. What? <laughs> Tell me about that thought process.
1: I mean, like I said, I was I was going traveling to find something. I was going sailing to find something. And if I had uh, if I had just called it quits after three weeks, as a as a massive failure, really. I mean, I, I left and I lost the boat at sea nine days later, and I got rescued. So whether it was uh, whether I was really that much of a kook or not, it was uh, it was a bad situation. So I mean. Um, I just didn't want to go home after that. I mean, I was looking for boats in Hong Kong, but the $1,500 Cal 27 doesn't really exist in Hong Kong. Mm -hmm. So you can't even find a small coastal cruiser for cheap like you can in California. Like I said, I got the bicycle, but I didn't want to fly home yet. So I wanted to continue the trip and that's what I did, you know?
0: So you went looking for boats again when you got back home. (laughs) What did you find?
1: I I got a Cal 25 for a thousand (laughs) bucks. Um, and what I had done was I, as soon as I got home, I started living on a friend's friend's couch. And I was working construction. And then I got an apartment. And so I had an apartment and a couch 25. I had like a room a room at a guy's house or something. And I had the Cal 25. And I was actually, uh, I had decided on my bike trip that, that my main goal in life was to go do that sailing race, the Vendee Globe. Oh. And so I, I had decided on my bike trip that that was the course of my life was was to go do the Vendée Globe. And uh, so then I, I gave myself this goal and I said, I'm gonna try to do the single-handed TransPAC next year, 2010. And it was already like September or October of 2009. I got this Cal 25, I started sailing, and I started thinking about how I would make a real budget campaign for the single-handed TransPAC and maybe try to use my backstory to get a little bit of sponsorship. And then as I was doing that, I wrote this article on Sailing Anarchy, or maybe they wrote it about me, I can't remember. But either way, my my wounded veteran to traveling to single-handed TransPAC aspiration, that story went out on a website called Sailing Anarchy, and this Vietnam veteran who was on the board of a wounded veteran nonprofit. he said, hey, I've got the perfect boat for the single-handed TransPAC you could use my boat and our wounded veteran nonprofit will give you some sponsorship. And I'm just like, this is all after like two weeks. I say, okay, absolutely. So I sell the Cal 25. I quit my construction job and I go to the East Coast to refit this Mount Gay 30. And it's this really cool 30 foot racing boat uh, built in 2000 in Australia. Um, It rates faster than a J-105. So it's a you know, it rates a lot faster than a Olsen 30. Like it's a fast 30 foot racing boat. So I refit that thing in North Carolina. I bring it back to San Francisco and it's like late January and I start training for the single-handed transpac uh, in 2010. I didn't have any money. I lived on a borrowed race boat and it was just the most hand-to-mouth, you know, racing campaign ever. But but I got to the finish line of the single-handed trans pack in 2010, and I actually did, like, pretty well. Like, not great, but I did I did pretty well. So it was just – I was on my way to to working on that goal of the Vendee Globe. And yeah. then on the way back is another story in itself, which is – Yeah, we'll
0: get probably, to that in just a second. But I just want to – I just yeah. pulled up on, on YouTube your sale on that uh, Mount K30, and you were screaming along at times and it looks like a fun little boat. And what was the name of that boat that you sailed in that first transpac?
1: Warrior's Wish. Warrior's which Wish, Which was okay. at, which was like named after a program within this nonprofit called Hope for the Warriors.
0: Got it. Okay. And that
1: was the nonprofit that gave me some support and that that the uh the guy who owns the boat um you know, he was on the board of that nonprofit so he put the whole thing together.
0: You brought the boat back from from Hawaii, but um You didn't get all the pieces back. (laughs) That's what you were alluding to. Tell us about what happened on the way back.
1: I was actually just thinking about it because right now, it's almost exactly 10 years from when this occurred. So I was just thinking a couple days ago, like, wow, that was 10 years ago right now. So I finished the single-handed TransPAC on the 4th of July, like the wounded veteran on the 4th of July. My girlfriend flew in fireworks, like I almost won the race. It was the best day ever, right? Yeah. Like a fairy tale ending to this story. And then like three weeks later, I was leaving Hawaii to sail back to California. And I had my friend Ed on the boat, Ed McCoy. He was a San Diego guy. And he was like my first sailing mentor. He was the first guy I ever came across where I was like, that guy really knows his shit. And if I just kind of like roll around with him and pay attention, I could probably learn a few things. He got me onto a couple of cool boats, taught me how to sail my boat, and then he actually helped me train a bit on the single-handed thing, and I said, hey, Ed, I'd love it if you could, if you could come do the delivery, and I didn't have any money to give him, but I flew him to Hawaii, and, 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 and we did it, and so we're leaving Hawaii, we're screaming out of there, the wind went light, and the high went pretty northeast, so we were, we were really sailing the boat. Like we had a nine horsepower diesel and we brought 15 gallons of diesel fuel. Like we were not motoring the boat home. It's a race boat, we were sailing. Mm -hmm. We're sailing 24 seven. We're doing great. We're going upwind. And we had been basically the whole trip, but it was only in 10 or 12 knots of wind. So it was like pretty flat. It was pretty nice. It was just upwind. One day we heard a couple of really bad noises. We both hopped up on on deck and we were looking at the rig, but we couldn't see anything wrong. And then like a couple hours later, maybe we heard a couple more bad noises. It was a pop, like the sound of a bolt or something failing, or in this case, a weld was actually failing. So it was a series of pops. Again, I went looking at the rig and Ed went down below and he pulled up a floorboard and he's like, dude, we got big structural issues. And so basically the whole grid of stringers going, you know, four and a half and side to side, those were all breaking at the 90 degree bend around the plate where the keel is bolted in. So basically this keel struck the structure all around the keel is like failing on the boat. We both go, oh, shit. So. We deeply reefed the main, even in 12 knots, and we also cracked off 20 or 30 degrees just to keep the boat from pounding or slamming at all. And so at this point, we're you know, pointing to Mexico and hoping that we can get a lift and just limp the boat into Southern California maybe. But that night, the keel fell off entirely. So at about three o'clock at night, we heard some more pops, and we were under reduced sail already, but we heard some more pops and then we were checking everything, and I can't quite remember the exact sequence of events, but we both had this revelation because we were trying to tack the boat, and we could not tack the boat. Middle of the night, it's already confusing. You're, you're under canvas, The keel falls off. All you have is a rudder. And we're like, we couldn't tack the boat. So finally, we like bear off to a reach. We generate speed, slam the boat through a tack, and we got it to tack, but we like almost flipped over, um, because the main got caught in by a by a runner or something. I can't remember, but um, I remember I had to jump down to leeward and open a clutch for the for the runner because it was holding the main in, and that's why the boat was kind of sort of starting to go over. Anyways, we did not flip, but um, we couldn't tack the boat, and that was really weird. So we're sailing along, still under reduced sail, and first thing in the morning, I jumped in. And verified that the keel had in fact fallen off so we had no keel at all and so once we knew we had no keel at all then we uh we called the coast guard and we called some people on the ssb or on the sat phone i can't quite remember but we called the coast guard and we were talking to them and and they said okay we know your situation you know let us know every few hours how you're going they got a container ship to come by and give us more fuel and so those guys were rad they They came by and they dropped off uh, several jugs of, of fuel and also a jug of oil. Once we had that extra fuel, then we just, we started motoring. And we had like 40 gallons of fuel and we just started motoring. And we had 800 miles to go, so we just motored with a small head sail. The amazing thing is that it went light for the last 700 miles into the bay. Wow. And that's usually the part, that's usually the part where boats get hammered is at those coastal northwesterlies. I mean, I'm not religious, but it's as if someone was looking out for us because we had seven or 800 miles of pretty mellow conditions. We could motor sail and the gribs were showing it perfectly that like right after we got in, it was going to start blowing 35. (sighs) The whole time we're like, A, I hope that wind doesn't get here early and B, we need to throttle up and get in ahead of that weather. I mean, we ran that little single-cylinder Yanmar, just just ran it for, like, five days. Wow! Didn't even change the oil, just, like, added a little bit of oil here and there. We just didn't even want to shut it off, you know? Right. We just didn't even want to risk it. So, so we, we just ran that little single-cylinder Yanmar, just, like, we 2600 <laughs> all the way across because we wanted to get in before the weather, and, and we did. And as soon as we got in, it started blowing 35 out of the northwest, like, four hours later. Wow. Yeah. And we motored all the way in with a number four head sail up from 760 miles out.
0: With the mast still pointing in the right direction.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah.
0: That was your first Transpac, but it wasn't your last.
1: No, I've I've raced to Hawaii six times now.
0: And how many of those times single-handed?
1: Well, I've only done the race twice. I did it in 2010 and 2012. And in 2012, I was a much better sailor. And... I actually won my division on a Moore 24, and then Congrats. Um, in 2013, I won my division in the big Trans Pack uh, on a really famous San Francisco boat called Criminal Mischief, and that boat had a bunch of you know really good professional sailors and stuff on it. I've done a couple other Trans Packs. I've done the Pacific Cup, a bunch of Mexico racing and Hawaii racing and stuff.
0: I know you've covered the Vendee Globe. Where does that dream stand?
1: I made what I felt was a pretty good attempt at trying to find funding for that race, and I spent a couple of years chasing that dream, and then said, you know, I can I can chase this dream of trying to find money, or I can just go do some sailing. And mm-hmm. so I uh, I went sailing in my little Cal Twenty Seven, um, and I sort of tried to keep that de Globe dream alive, but. That wasn't realistic, so I just went. I went sailing. I went cruising, and I took my little engineless Cal Twenty Seven from from the Bay all the way to New Zealand, and then came through Fiji for the first time. So here we are, full circle. Now I'm living in Fiji.
0: So currently, you have a Peterson Thirty Four in Fiji. Where'd you start with that boat?
1: I bought that boat in Honolulu. Uh, I, I went back to school for a few years, got my degree in in media stuff, but. I bought this Peterson 34 that uh, about four years ago almost. Um, I bought it in 2016 and then I did a bunch of sailing in Hawaii and then I sailed it here uh, last year.
0: You've gone from being the wounded vet who found healing through sailing to helping other vets. Tell us about the work that you've done there.
1: That was actually some really cool work, and I do want to eventually try to get back to that at some point. Basically, in twenty twelve, the second time that I was racing the single headed Transpac, sponsored by that nonprofit Hope for the Warriors, they offered to allocate a certain amount of funding to help out my campaign. And then I said, "Well, you this know, this is the same organization that helped camp-
0: you the first time around." Yeah, correct. Yeah, okay. Yeah, they're
1: they're called Hope for the Warriors. For the they're Warriors. in North Carolina. Okay. They gave me some financial help in 2012 which was uh, which was awesome and so i prepared for the race i ended up winning my division you know and and it was it was and, and i i won some other races that year on that boat so it was a it was a really cool year got a lot of confidence from it but i said you know i, I want to make this campaign actually mean something so myself and my best friend in the bay area this guy named walter and he's actually an army veteran himself He's a surfer and I got him into sailing as he got me into surfing. We decided to start a, a clinic and we decided to you know, use sailing seeing as how it had changed my life and his life as well. We wanted to use sailing to you know, positively impact other veterans and, and to help re-inspire some other veterans and, and create a therapeutic water-based healing activity for guys with PTSD because we both saw the value of, of all these things that it actually creates for an individual with PTSD and anxiety. We started this uh, sailing clinic, you know, and and we funded it basically by I, I went around to yacht clubs in the Bay Area and I was telling my story with like a PowerPoint presentation. And I was talking about the epidemic of veteran suicide in the U.S. And I'm saying, hey, if, if I can get a few grand out of this this room right here, then we can bring, you know, six veterans to San Francisco and we can do this, 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 this and this. And it's having this impact on these guys and girls, et cetera. And so we were pretty successful in that. And we, um, we did a series of clinics with Hope for the Warriors, raised close to $50,000 for those guys, helped out like 30 veterans, 30 or 40 veterans, actually, during that time. And then a couple years later, Walter and I decided to, you know, our, our clinic had, had developed its own unique identity. And so rather than being a small project that was on the side of this huge nonprofit, we actually felt that it would be maybe better for us and for the clinic if we created this nonprofit that had its own autonomy. And so we did. And we started a nonprofit called CORE, which C-O-R-E means Coastal and Offshore Recalibration Experience. And So basically, it was combining uh, surfing, sailing, and other ocean-based therapeutic activities to help combat PTSD and, and ultimately try to, you know, lower the rate of veteran suicide. And so we created CORE and we did a couple of events in San Francisco and we also did a, did an event out in Hawaii. But in the last couple of years, as I've been cruising and now here in Fiji and now with the COVID pandemic, we haven't done an event in close to three years. It's kind of been on the back burner, but uh, at some point we you know i think both of us do want to revisit that that was some i think really necessary and also really gratifying work
0: and we talked a bit about the similarities between combat and sailing but what do you think it is about being on the water whether it's surfing or sailing that that helps with that recalibration
1: i mean it's a combination of things as much as the you know ptsd itself there's these other stigmas that come with, with a psychological injury or with being medicated or with having any type of depression or anxiety. That creates you know like a cascading number of effects. And, and one of those is obviously like a reliance on prescription pharmaceuticals. When you get that reliance on prescription pharmaceuticals, you know, a lot of times you end up with this individual that's just zonked out and they're on a disability check and they just kind of become reclusive and they, they begin just, taking all these pills that help them function but in reality it keeps them from functioning and they end up just secluding themselves to a house somewhere and 10 years later they're super unhealthy and super unfulfilled and they become a very vulnerable person that doesn't really have a purpose you know and a person in life with no purpose is a really really vulnerable person um and i think one of the in hindsight and this isn't necessarily what we expected going in but in hindsight i think that one of the most impactful things that we did with CORE and with Hope for the Warriors before was that we got some guys and girls out of the house that hadn't been out of the house in a while. Mm. And so they would apply to our program. They would email us. We'd talk to them. You know, they'd fill out fill out an application. They would email us. We would talk to them over email and over the phone. And then we would align. We would arrange some airfare, and we'd, we'd bring six or eight veterans out from anywhere in the country at a time and do these clinics you know a few of them a year and so these these men and women they would fly out from say it was Montana or Texas or it was uh, Pennsylvania a lot of them from California obviously but uh, we had people from everywhere and they would do something they hadn't done in a while and they would break out of their mold they'd get out of the house they'd go meet some really cool people and then they would follow up with some other trip with like another organization you know, they weren't just like a, a free holiday. Some of them were, but most of them were actually an impactful experience where these veterans made, you know, life-lasting connections and they, they began to rebuild their own sort of support group by feeling that camaraderie. And it was getting getting these guys and girls together on boats, six or eight of them, and putting them through this, this uh, uh, program over the course of a week that, That sort of challenged them in a lot of ways putting you know putting the big tattooed wounded veteran who's all buffed out from texas putting him through a yoga class in san francisco and then going to like a vegan restaurant after sailing all day it was really really (laughs) like tripping these guys out and we had all these guys from the south and they would you would break down these barriers that were incredible and they would tell us at the end of five days they'd be like man back home in louisiana we vilify you liberals in San Francisco, but we just came out here and we hung out with some liberals in San Francisco for five days and man, it blew my fucking mind. And I mean, it was just such a profound impact. We had a guy that, that hadn't left in forever and he became like an artist after our clinic. We had a couple of guys that went on an incredible journey after our clinic and made an incredible film about it. And uh, we've had other success stories as well that got into sailing and other guys that uh, that started coming back to the Bay actually to, To sail and do other things continually and and that's what got him out of the house and allowed him to rebuild his community and so I I think like the uh the camaraderie of sailing is is arguably the the biggest thing but it was just the inspiring people to to get out of the house and to go do something again and, and to find that stoke through through nature and through adventure and through surfing and through nature and going up to Muir Woods doing yoga, and just uh, meeting new friends and making new connections, you know?
0: It's inspiring. And it and, and it makes me think that so often those of us who live in the Bay Area take for granted everything we have at our disposal here.
1: It's certainly a special place.
0: But tell us about your latest endeavor there in Fiji. Uh, I was reading a b- article you posted on Sailing Anarchy I think a few months ago talking about your new business you were starting up and you were thinking about selling your current boat a peterson 34
1: yeah i mean i i came here as i mentioned i came here the first time in 2014 on the little boat mongo and i came back here 2019 last year on my peterson and i mean i loved fiji both times i was in the same area but i loved fiji and i had always kind of thought in the back of my head that you know i could sort of just live in Fiji and start a life there and so as I got back here last year you know a couple things were going on in my life and I just thought you know I really would like to give it a go and I think I can make it work and I had a few ideas in my head so I just started putting one foot in front of the other and I went down to the investment office and I got an investor visa certificate I've got most of my permits but I've started a company called Mama Nuda Board Traders PTE Limited. And Mamanuda is the name of the island group that I live in. And that's where the most famous surf in Fiji and some of the most famous surf in the world is. So I started a full service uh, stand up paddleboard and surfing company at a resort island. It's like a big hotspot for cruising yachts. And it's really close to all the good surf. So I've basically got like 32 uh, stand up paddleboards and surfboards. And I've got like the foil boards, I've got the downwind racing boards, I've got the surf boards, the surfing subs, everything, and all the cool toys, and we do that along with we're going to be doing yacht charters on my boat, and then I'm going to have like a 25-foot skiff for getting to and from the surf, and then we also do media services with my background, such as photo and video and drone packages, and I think there's a huge market in here. not during COVID of course, but there's a huge market in Fiji of just enjoying these amazing things. Like you said, you have in the Bay, these amazing things you have right here in Fiji. And I mean, people will spend really top dollar to come here and have an amazing experience. And so, um, this was just a reflection of that. I saw, I, I saw that there was more opportunity to occupy a couple of little specific, you know, niches in this tourism market. And it's just where I want to be, you know? So I set this business up and obviously COVID is a, um it's a big setback
0: yeah but i think that uh i think that after the market goes down really hard
1: it's gonna have to come back up really hard at some point so i'm just trying to be well positioned for that you know
0: uh it's rough timing for you
1: it's gonna be all good i'm actually still at work i'm still making money as it is right now and um just a lot slower and i'm putting that money all into the company and just trying to get everything up and going by next year so i mean it's it's it could be a lot worse, you know? I mean, I, I'm, I'm still very fortunate to be here in Fiji right now.
0: Ronnie, what haven't we talked about that that you want to mention?
1: That's it, man. I mean, you just wanted to uh, chat. I know you chatted with my good friend, Ryan Nelson. Ryan's an amazing guy and one one of my very good friends back in the Bay. Yeah, it was, it was good that we finally chatted.
0: Nice. Well, next time you're back here, ping me and love to uh, get together, go for a sail or just have a beer be yeah great man to meet i was in supposed to be
1: back there right about now but covid so
0: yeah good luck with it all thanks so much i really appreciate this and um it's great to hear about all your high sea adventures and bicycle adventures and uh, everything that you've done so thank you
1: yeah thanks for having me and uh i hope that you guys are all all stand safe to any of my bay area friends i I hope that you guys are all able to stay safe and still get out on the water. Thinking about all you guys back in the States, definitely it's not fun to watch. But uh, just best of luck to all you guys and you know, just hope everyone can stay safe.
0: Well, that's it for this episode. If you want to read any of Ronnie's recent articles on sailing, simply do a Google search for his name, Ronnie Simpson, and you'll find a whole slew. And you can check out Mamanuka Board Traders at MamanukaBoardTraders.com That's spelled M-A-M-A-N-U-C-A BoardTraders.com The business is also on Instagram at M-B-T-Fiji And while you're on Instagram why not follow Out the Gate Sailing? It's a great way to keep up to date with the podcast and if you want to reach out to me directly and I always love Hearing from listeners, you can email me at outthegatesailing at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening. I'm Ben Shaw, host and producer of the show. Until next time, smooth sailing.